Thank you, worship team. Can I swipe this stand? I don't know if this is the sacred Ryan stand, so I make sure I ask permission beforehand. This is good. Oh, oh there's a spot. Thank you. <laughs> I used to work in the worship ministry at a large church. I know what these worship guys are like, so I'm just kidding. Love Ryan, love Ryan. Hey, my name's Doug. I'll be filling in the next few weeks. Uh, sometimes you get a guest speaker, you go, well, who is this guy? Um, so I don't know that I'll answer that question very well, but let me give you a quick, a quick uh, who is Doug. Um, I pastored churches for about 20 years in various roles. Uh, moved here from Minnesota in 2000 to work at a church that used to be called Word of Grace up in Mesa and was on staff there for a while. Uh, in 2006, I left there to explore and experiment with some other kinds of Christian community and church planting. In 2011, I stepped out of pastoral ministry in this past uh, six years or so. I've been mostly working in organizations that do relief and development uh, Christian ministry. So my um, wife, she works at Food for the Hungry. She's been there 10 and a half years, Heidi has. And so uh, I worked there for a year she obviously has outlasted me very well there. Um, and the last couple of years, I've been working for another similar organization called Reconciled World. I am stepping out of that role as of July 1, because the last year and a half or so, we've really sensed God pulling us and, and wooing us back into doing some type of church ministry. So I've started going through licensing and ordination with the Covenant Church. I feel like this is really my tribe, and uh, Heidi and I found our way to your church, um, Hope Covenant, uh, this, this summer. So we're really glad to be here. I want to say happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Yeah, we got some. It's kind of fun for me. My dad uh, is right out here with my mom and uncle and aunt and some friends and my son as well. So uh, they're here and so glad that you guys are here. Um, they, by the way, and <clears throat> the couples that are with them um, have all moved here now from Minnesota. And so if, if you see them, they're in the fourth row here. Just apologize to them about this time of the year and the weather they're going to be. <laughs> You know, we're kind of used to it, especially Tuesday. Just be like, ooh, it's 70 degrees in Minnesota, guys. Ah, so, <laughs> all right, so this morning, eventually, we're going to get to Acts chapter 2, uh, where Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, he kind of pulls back the curtain so we can see what life in a biblically functioning community actually looks like. Uh, the last couple of weeks, let me catch you up to speed, we launched our Summer Together Celebrating Community as our theme, moving to this one service for the summer. And last week, I loved the sermon that, that Paul um, brought us. He talked about what the early church actually looked like. See, often we romanticize this early church, Acts church, as this utopian time where everything was kind of lollipops and unicorns, but um, that, that fantasy wasn't what the book of Acts actually tells us it was like. And if you didn't hear his sermon, I encourage you to just go onto our website and listen back to that. It was really fantastic. Um, my summary of that sermon was this. Um, the early church was, was really messed up. I mean, there were some great things. But there was also, as Paul noted, some leadership problems, financial problems, a lack of compassion, persecution, deceit, murmuring, corruption, legalism and judgmentalism, segregation and racism. That's what that early church looked like, which I'm actually really honestly encouraged by because it shows us that even with all of our flaws and imperfections, 
God has continued to work through his imperfect church in order to love and minister to the world around us for over 2,000 years. Um, here, I'm going to pull the dad card and pause for a second. Hey, uh, son, would you bring me my water? It's under the seat right there. It'll be good. <laughs> Feeling a little parched. Yeah, it was Noah, everybody here. Thanks, buddy. <clears throat> Noah just graduated, heading to ASU next year. Proud dad here. All right. Back to community. Okay, so one of the things I love about Hope Covenant and why we came here, I love the size of our church. Um, I've worked at a church in Minnesota of 5,000 folks. I've been in pastoral leadership at a church here in the valley that was 4,500 people. And we are surrounded right here in Chandler, right, by a bunch of what are known as megachurches, and there's some really good churches. But one of the things that I learned in my time at working at these really large churches was this. It's very, very difficult for individuals to engage in biblically functioning community. It's really difficult to do that in those giant settings. But here at Hope, we actually have the opportunity to do this community thing, this biblical community thing, and to do it really well. So the next couple of weeks, what I want to do is lay out some of the realities of biblical community and invite us to go deeper into community. So before I get to the text, though, what I want to do here, um, I want to take a few minutes to kind of point out some crucial things about our culture that we live in here today, right here in the USA, uh, right here in Arizona. And I think it's important for me to point out that the way our culture is wired is in direct opposition to biblical community. Let me say that another way. We are each wired by God, each one of us. We're wired by God to have community, to have close connectedness. But everything in our world stands in direct opposition to that. So to kind of draw a picture for us of what our culture looks like, I want to set up the rest of the message uh, looking at how our culture clashes with biblical community. And I want to do this in a way that might seem a little abstract to some of us, but I think it's terribly important, and I get to talk this morning, so there you go. Um, so just hang with me on this. So you guys ready for a little uh, sociology 101, about five minutes worth? Yeah? Okay. Hang with me. All right. Now, one of the most important books about American society in the last couple of decades was a book written by Robert Bella called Habits of the Heart. In this book, <clears throat> Bella says that instead of living in actual genuine community, Today in our society, the model for group life is what he calls lifestyle enclaves. And the people, he says, they want to live in these lifestyle enclaves. In our day, he says, to a large extent, people are primarily concerned with the pursuit of a certain kind of lifestyle. That's mostly what they're after here in the USA and in the West in general. And this has mostly to do with things like uh, leisure and consumption, right? People want to make sure they can acquire good things, right? The right house, the right car, the right kind of furniture, go on the right kind of vacations. People in our culture, according to him, they want to make sure that we enjoy these things and we want to fill our lives with pleasant activities. They want convenient shopping and recreational opportunities. Bella says they want a life that offers comfort, enjoyment, and security. And that's the dream that people in our culture and many of us pursue. Now, he says, it's no fun to pursue this kind of stuff alone. So people look for other people that they can explore this lifestyle with 
uh, people that they will band together with who are socially and economically and culturally similar to them so they can share this lifestyle. And those that do not or cannot afford to pursue this lifestyle, they're just not a part of these enclaves. They just don't belong. In fact, the word enclave comes from an old French word that means to enclose something, to, to seal it off. Something important to notice, though, is this about the enclave. Uh, Bella says there is no vision that the enclave will benefit people who live outside. Outsiders are simply irrelevant to those who live inside. Now, oftentimes people will use the word community to describe these little enclaves. Um, sometimes they'll even have the word community in their neighborhood you know, title. Uh, for 13 years, we lived in uh, Augusta Ranch, a golf club community. That's what the sign at our entrance said when you drove in. Let's show of hands here. Um, who here lives in a development or a neighborhood that has one of those entrance monuments that uses the word community in it? Anybody have that? Yeah, there's just a few of us. Wow, oh, okay, all right, all right. Um, and again, it sounds nice, doesn't it? You know, Augusta Ranch, uh, a golf club community, Agritopia community. I mean, uh, all these wonderful communities. Um, but Bella, the sociologist, he says, but they are not communities. They are exclusive band of individuals pursuing lifestyles, and they're held together by the weakest of ties. You know, I think he's right about that, because when my son Noah was little, we loved to go trick-or-treating, first of all, for the candy, okay. But um, um, guess who ate the candy? Uh, but really, the other reason we would go is this was a way for us to meet our neighbors who we otherwise wouldn't meet, like because everybody drives into their garage, gets out and goes into their house. If they go to the backyard, there's block walls. It's just how we do life here. And we knew one guy kind of in the neighborhood, but we never saw him. And he would tell us about, oh, yeah, there's a guy three doors down from you that goes to your church. And, oh, there's a pastor uh, just across the street from you. And <laughs> we'd been there for years, and we never knew. It wasn't much of a community. But here in Arizona, we're actually kind of famous for this. People move to Arizona just to get into one of these little lifestyle enclaves. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but lots of people retire to Arizona for that very reason. They save up their whole life long, so they'll be able to afford this. It's what they look forward to. And so when they get here, at least when they get here for the winter, um, they go to breakfast in the morning. That's right. I wish I could just be here for the winter, honestly. So... Um, but when they get here, they'll go to breakfast in the morning. And anybody want to guess what the number one topic is for conversation when they go to breakfast? Yeah, what are we, well, the weather's number one, yes. And then the top three is, oh, where do we go to dinner tonight? <laughs> right? That's, am I right? Anybody? Right? Okay. Um, and again, it's the pursuit of a lifestyle. Now, let me make something really clear here. I'm not opposed to gated communities or retirement communities. I don't want to get in trouble on this one, right? And if you're mad, just email ryan at hopechurchchandler. <clears throat> and he'll delete those for me. Um, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not saying that it's a bad idea to live in one of those, unless, by the way, you just don't care about anybody outside your community. But in general, I'm not saying it's a terrible thing. Uh, I, I remember when I moved here, though, this was kind of a new thing for me from coming from Minnesota. And... Um, way back in 2000, 2001 or two, I went to visit some friends that lived in a gated community, and, and they actually had a guard shack, and there were guards inside the shack, and I thought, wow, this is weird, right? So I pulled up, and do you think those guards were happy to see me? Like, 
right? I mean, dude, here I am, this guy with a minivan, and back then Noah was, you know, in the back seat in a car seat, and do you think the guard said, oh, we're so delighted that you're here, let's have this triumphal procession, and we'll sound the trumpets as you go into our community. Yeah, no, it did not work that way. I mean, they grilled me. They wanted to know my name who I was there to visit, how long I was going to be there. They wanted to see two forms of identification, and I'm lying. I'm lying about the ID part. They didn't card me, but the rest of it. You know, their job, as the guards, were to keep people out of that little community. They gave me the third degree. Again, here's the point I'm trying to make from all of that sociology. Oddly enough, this kind of stuff can happen in religious communities. Churches can become kind of gated communities. Not so bad in your neighborhood to have that kind of security, right? I'm not saying that. But the metaphor I'm looking at is this stuff happens in churches. Churches can do that kind of stuff. I read an article once where the writer mentioned a religious community. They were kind of a monastic community. It's a true far, uh, story as far as I know, which is what a pastor says when they don't have time to Google to see if it's really a true story. So far as I know, this is a true story. Um, there was a fence all the way around keep the folks on the inside in, and they keep the folks on the outside out. And there was a sign on the fence of this place, and the sign read, keep out, beware of dog. Trespassers will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And it was signed, Little Sisters of Mercy. True as far as I know. <clears throat> Friends, you know this, right? God did not create his church to be a lifestyle enclave. He did not create Hope Covenant or any other church to be a gated community devoted to the comfort and protection of those who live behind the fence. He made his community to be a blessing to the earth, to proclaim the good news of restoration for all people. So this morning, we're going to read this passage, and then I just want to look at two differences between life in a biblically functioning community as opposed to life the general way that it works in our world in the kind of lifestyle enclaves that that people pursue in our day. So Acts chapter 2, begin with verse 42, reading from the TNIV. Luke gives us a kind of snapshot of life in the early church community. They devoted themselves, he said, to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and miraculous signs done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That right there, a little snapshot of life in a biblically functioning community in the first century. Again, Last week, great sermon. We know that it wasn't perfect, but they did get some things right. And I just want to look at a couple of those today. And the first thing that I want us to notice about this community is found in a word right there, chapter 2, verse 42, the very first verse that we read. Luke says, they devoted themselves. 
And this is one of his favorite words. He uses it once in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, the disciples and followers devoted themselves to meeting together in the upper room for prayer. He uses it again here. They devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. He uses it again in verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves, same word he used it again, right, to meeting together in the temple. See, this new community that Jesus formed is marked by devotion. And this word itself comes from a word that means a binding promise, a pledge. And these were people of devotion. They had bound themselves to God, and they had bound themselves to each other. And so life in authentic community is characterized by people who are devoted to God and to each other. Now, that's really different from the way that relationships work in our normal word, isn't it? world, isn't it? In the lifestyle enclave, people have a very low commitment level. Hey, if it meets my needs, I stay. If it doesn't meet my needs, I move on. We become consumers. Isn't that true? We do that in our neighborhoods, we do that in our relationships, and we do it in our churches, don't we? I mean, honestly, I have. I've done that. And we look back at the early church, and one of the great illusions in our day is we look back and go, yeah, well, you know, the early church, it was easy for those people, but, you know, I'm busy. Like, my life situation makes it really difficult. And I just want to say, guys, it's never been easy Right? It's never been easy to devote yourselves to community, but God will help us when we do because this stuff really matters. Now, at, at the heart of this word devotion, it has to do with enduring or sticking to something even when it would be easier not to. That's the way devotion works, and it's a powerful force. It's a very powerful tool, and it's an ingredient in building authentic community, and let me kind of explain why here. Um, I'll put this in maybe the form of a question. This is honesty time, so for just a moment here, we're gonna be transparent with each other. I'm gonna ask for a show of hands on this one, and, and just like, I just don't care who sees you raise your hand, right? This is honesty time here, just for a moment. No, let's test out the no perfect people allowed, right? Right, are we, are we in agreement? Okay, just checking. Making sure it's not just on our sign. Okay, good. <clears throat> How many of you have ever had a Sunday morning roll around, it's time for church, you've had a long week, right? You worked hard all week trying to get stuff done at the house, you're just wiped out. All week you had cranky people in your life or you've been the cranky person in someone else's life and the thought just occurs to you, you know what, it would be easier today just to stay home, you know, take a bath, watch TV, eat Twinkies. I'm not sure I want to go to church this morning, okay? Show of hands. How many have ever had a feeling, come on, how many, right? Okay. Even a fleeting, the rest of you? Okay. Don't look so excited about this, folks, all right? I'm not going to reinforce it. I'm just asking for a confession, okay? Yeah. All right, second question, a little longer. How many of you have ever come to church on one of those days. You came anyway when it would have just been easier to stay home. You wanted to skip, you showed up anyway, and then something happened, like you encountered God in worship, or you had a sense that God really spoke to your heart, uh, or you went, wow, I really needed to learn what was taught today, or you were encouraged when you desperately needed encouragement in your life, and when you walked out of this room, you thought, what if I had missed that? What if I had skipped out? What if I hadn't been there? How many of you ever had, had that experience? Yeah. Yeah, me too. I had that happen last week, actually, so, um, yeah. And friends, see, 
There will always be times when spiritual growth will require our cooperation. It's just part of spiritual life. Not, it's not striving or performing. It's not that. But just our cooperation. Um, and there will always be times when building authentic community will be more difficult than not building community where it's just easier not to do it at all. And I'm not just talking about, you know, showing up for church service every week, although I believe that is important. I mean connecting our lives with authentic community, real relationships where we do life together. And, you know, community, it's, it's really a big buzzword these days. I mean, who wouldn't like close, intimate relationships? Sounds wonderful. But they don't just magically happen. They don't. And if I want those kinds of relationships, I'm going to have to be willing to rearrange my priorities and let some things go so that I have space in my life uh, to offer that kind of community, that kind of commitment and sacrifice. I'm going to have to give up some time. I'm going to have to be there for somebody even when it's not convenient. Like that's, I'm going to have to do that. And I, me, I will have to initiate. How come they don't do it first? I will have to initiate over and over and over and over. Because building community is more difficult than just ignoring it and not doing it at all. It's always easier just not to do it. But I promise you, I know this from experience, it is worth it. It's worth it. In fact, God made you and I. It's how he wired us. The whole Genesis passage about it is not good for for man or woman to be alone, that's not just about marriage. Like you were wired, created for those authentic relationships. And again, I I want just a little caution here. This doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that God calls us to this life of ever-increasing, legalistic, emotionless, overworked, driven performance, the long list of stuff to do. That's not what this is about. But what it means is that we have to identify in our life and prioritize what are the few, not many, what are the few central things that I want to be devoted to? Because everybody is devoted to something. Just look at our to-do list or our calendar, and that'll show us what we're devoted to. So my call here is not to say, all right, you're really busy, but we're going to add another obligation onto your life. Um, the call is just for us to stop, and, and this week, the invitation is to discern. Use the questions in the back of the bulletin to discern what is it that God is calling you to devote your life to that will bring about the life of Christ being formed in you the things that you can participate in that will help in your transformation. You know, what will I be committing my time and, and life to in order to help cultivate community? Because it's not instant ready-made. Hey, we're here. Somebody, you know, be the cruise ship director and just tell me what to do. No, no, no. You're going to have to engage in this and help facilitate this. It's not just the staff's job. It's not just the elder's job to do this. We get to participate as the body in creating biblical community. John Ortberg points out, in the church, he says, we're not about being a lifestyle enclave. We're not just about finding other people of similar culture, economic backgrounds, and pursuing the same kind of lifestyle. We are about building a biblically functioning community that's built on people who say, I will be devoted to God and to other people. Right? Again, we're built on devotion. God's devotion to us our devotion to him and to each other. And so again, this week, I just want you to reflect on some of the questions uh, in the back of the bulletin, uh, just asking, you know, are you devoted? 
And again, I don't mean, oh, so there are a long list of stuff that you're devoted to, so you're overcommitted and unhealthy. No, that's not it. Are you devoted to, to God and his body, his church? Or do you just kind of find yourself going back and forth from involvement to passivity? And for some of you, maybe this will mean joining a small group. Uh, for some of you, it'll mean maybe even starting a small group. Maybe it's just meeting with a friend or two on a regular basis to stop and pray for each other. Maybe it means serving on a ministry team where you can actually connect with some other people. Whatever it is that it means for you, it's going to cost you some time and effort. And people that really want this kind of community, they will decide that they're going to invest significant time in deep relationships. So will we decide that? Will we make that decision today? Because it doesn't just magically happen. We have to step into it and sometimes help cultivate and create it. Because life in authentic community is characterized by people who are devoted to God and each other. All right, the other thing I want to notice about the community are the people of God. This is the second fill in the blank if you're uh, following along in the very sparse notes spot that I gave you today. People in Jesus-centered community are devoted to the people who are outside the community. Right, so first of all, we're devoted to each other and to God, but then from that place, we are then devoted to people outside of our community, right? People that are on the inside of any community, they spend their lives, I mean, they'll stay up at night trying to figure out how to enhance the lives of those outside the community so that others can be blessed and become a part of the new community. I like to think of this in terms of The Matrix. You guys remember that movie? Really old now. Anybody? Yeah? Okay, a few of us. All right. So in that movie, uh, there was this band of freedom fighters, Neo, Morpheus, Trinity, and the gang, and these people had been captive to The Matrix, but, but then they got set free. And once they were set free from The Matrix, do you remember what their mission was? Yeah, yeah, once they got set free, it was their mission to set other people. They went back in to set other people free from captivity, right? So they, having been released from captivity, became this band of freedom fighters with the mission of setting others free. And I think that's an incredible picture of the church, right? Jesus has set you and I free and then he calls us to love and serve others outside our walls so we might help set them free, that the world would be blessed by us and that freedom would come as we pour out love on others. And that this wasn't just like, hey, I'm going to start doing this in the New Testament. This has always been God's intention with the people of God. When God called Abraham, he told him, Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And look at this last couple lines. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, see that? Not just you and your people would be a big bless me club. No, the people of God. From the Old Testament times through today, we are called so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through us. 
Let's look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Just a little phrase in there we might miss. Before that, it says, you know, they're breaking bread in their homes. They're eating with glad and generous hearts. They praise God. And then look at this. It says, and they're having, they're enjoying the favor, so the goodwill of the people. So, so they're benefiting the lives of those around them. They're the kind of people that bring joy to the people in the world. And Luke says, daily, the Lord's adding to their number those who are being saved, those who are coming inside the community, those who are being set free. Now, in gated communities, in that whole lifestyle enclave mindset, those gates are closed. Fences are up, the signs are posted, outsiders are not welcome. But in the kingdom of God, the gates are thrown open wide. Because the people in the community are trying to figure out ways to enhance the lives of those outside of the community. And that's what we want to be about. We want to enhance the life of the community right around us, right around where you live. And there's a real theological term for that. It's actually called blessing people. Translation, right? It's just simple things. Like, how do we love and serve people? How do we create value, uh, enhance lives? And how do we do that in the name of Jesus? That's how we bless people. Because we want for people to become a part of the community of God. And people really will. Like, really, people will do this. When a, when a church community like ours functions as a biblically functioning community and devotes itself to blessing and the proclamation of the good news to those outside, then God adds to our number those who are being saved. And Jesus makes this announcement when he's here on earth that God wants anyone, everyone to be a part of his new community. And so Jesus invites all kinds of people. You read the stories through the gospels. He invites tax collectors, prostitutes, a Roman centurion, a Samaritan adulteress, With Jesus' dying breath, he invites a thief, a criminal being crucified on the cross next to him. He invites him into this gracious, grace-filled, grace-extending communities. And many of Jesus' most important and unforgettable stories center around this story that God is very serious. He's totally earnest about throwing his community wide open to anybody who will enter in. There's a wonderful modern version of one of Jesus' stories um, about the banquet of God and who's invited. Philip Yancey writes about this. Yancey says it was actually written first in the Boston Globe's account back in June of 1990 of a most unusual wedding banquet. And this is a real story, but it's really a kind of version of Jesus' parable. Here's the story. Accompanied by her fiancé, Yancey writes, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered the meal what the wedding banquet was going to be. The two of them poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, pointed to the flower arrangements they wanted. They both had expensive tastes, and so the bill came to $13,000. Nowadays, that's probably closer to thirty. dollars okay? But <clears throat> having just done a wedding not that long ago, it's, it's spending, right? So after leaving a check for half the amount as a down payment, the couple went home. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this a little longer. And then he backed out. He jilted her. When his angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager at the Hyatt couldn't have been more understanding. 
Same thing happened to me, she said. And she told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she only had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to $1,300 back. Again, this is a $13,000 deal. She told her, you have two options. Forfeit the rest of the payment or go ahead with the banquet. I'm sorry, she said. I really am. It seemed crazy, but the, the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked this idea of going ahead with the party. Not a, not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a big blowout. Ten years before, this same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She had gotten back on her feet, found a good job, set aside a sizable nest egg, and now she had the wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. And so it was that summer that the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party as had never been seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom, she said. <clears throat> and she sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. So that warm summer night, people who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off the cardboard dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from the hard life on the sidewalks outside and instead ate chocolate wedding cake and danced to big band melodies late into the night. And the way Jesus ends his parable is with these words. Go out into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor and bring in the crippled and bring in the blind and bring in the lame. Compel them to come in, he says, so that my house may be filled. And his house is a really big house and it ain't filled yet, but it's going to be one day. And God says, compel them to come in. Jesus says, invite everybody, everybody, especially people who thought they had missed out on it. And after Jesus ascended, that early church took his command very seriously. And we here at Hope Covenant take these words very seriously from Jesus as well. The sign that says, no perfect people allowed, that, that's one way of saying, hey, we want to fling wide the gates and invite people into the community of Jesus. Maybe people that don't fit anywhere else, but they are welcome here. And that takes the right kind of gatekeepers. And you have a pastor and a staff and elders that reflect that heart. But, but it's not just them, right? It's not just them. What it takes is the right kind of gatekeepers. When we started this message, I talked about that idea of gated communities. Well, churches have gatekeepers, and they're the people at the core of the church. And at Hope Covenant, no surprise, I've got news for you, but I think you probably already know this. The gatekeepers are us. It's you and me. People that are in this room, whether we're new or we've been here from the beginning, and we will buy our lives... We will, by the sharing of our faith or our refusal to share our faith, um, we will, by our openness or our closeness, we will declare that either the gates are closed or that the gates are open and people can come in. Imagine one of our gated community neighborhoods around here where, where the gates were always open. 
I mean, imagine coming by this gated community, except the gates are open 24 hours a day, and the guards, instead of grilling folks when they come to the little guardhouse, the guards are actually sent outside the community into the streets outside, and they just try to get anybody they can to come into this gated community. They just flag people down on the road and say, hey, hey, come on, come on, come on, come on in here, come in here. Well, Jesus says that's what his community is like. He says it's like a banquet where the master tells his servants, just go out into the highways and byways and compel people to come in. I mean, drag them in, just bring them because the gates have been flung wide open and life in the kingdom of God is now available to everybody and God passionately wants them to come in. I think the challenge is clear, at least in my life. And I've kind of struggled with it ever since I've been in church ministry. <laughs> the, the, the challenge is to be a community that is focused not just on being devoted to God and each other, as important as that is for a starting point, but then to extend our focus to those outside of our walls. Right? We're not interested in being a bless me club. That's not Jesus' vision for his church. In fact, Jesus uses some really interesting um, imagery when he's talking about the church. Paul actually had me read this, and he used this verse uh, as a part of his sermon last week. Jesus says the church is built on the faith of people like Peter. He says, on this rock, on the faith of people like Peter, I will build my church. And then he says, remember what he says, will not prevail against his church? Yeah, the gates of hell will not prevail. He says, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, ironically enough, at the end of the day, it's not the church that's the gated community, according to the Bible and the imagery of Jesus. It's hell itself that puts up gates to barricade out the life and love of God. And Jesus says, my church, when it's marching, when it's living the life that I have for it, when it's devoted to me and to each other, my church will batter down the gates of the enemy. My church will seek and claim those who are lost, but who will respond to a God who loves them with tenacity and intensity. Jesus says that his church, his true church, will ram against the gates of darkness, the gates of hatred and fear, and that hell will be no match for the church, and that the gates of hell will be crumpled up and be trampled by the march of the church. Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the church, folks. That's you and me. And together with the power of God, we will build what Jesus called a city on a hill, a light to the community, one that's devoted to God and each other, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, are you in? And will you begin to wonder with me what it will look like as you and I devote ourselves to God and to each other and then to the people outside our walls, where, where imperfect people are welcomed, where they're invited in, not just by a sign, but by our courage and in inviting and doing life with folks, where imperfect people are welcomed and loved and served by imperfect people like us. And that sounds like a Jesus-centered community to me. And because that's already in the DNA of Hope Covenant, we are perfectly positioned to flourish. But, but I honestly, again, I'm the new guy, but I think in order for that to really flourish and begin to happen, we all have to be all in. 
Amen? Amen. Um, Ryan, will you come and let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you are good, that you love us, that you have invited us into your mission here on earth, that we get to connect with each other, um, to be devoted to you, to one another. But it doesn't stop there. You call us to love and serve the people around us, the people that you um, have put in our path. So Jesus, I pray that um, even now, as we close with this song, you would prompt our hearts, um, maybe even give us specific folks that we can reach out to to help build community right here, but then also people outside our walls. You give us specific names or faces and an opportunity this week to begin cultivating those relationships. Uh, We thank you that you are good. We thank you for your love in Jesus' name. Amen.